for the remainder of the service, all right? All right, so we're going to get into the Word this morning. Uh, We have been in a series of messages over the last several weeks that, uh, man, I am just, it's just been awesome. You know, sometimes when you when you're the one that preaches the message, um, you know, there are times where you're preaching to yourself, probably more times than not, you're preaching to yourself, and then other times uh, you, you just get really excited about the Word, and this is like all of it, all in one. I mean, I'm preaching to myself, it's just got me really excited, I've enjoyed this series, and that is our series, Fulfilled, and we are in week number three, and just to kind of recap you up to where we've, uh, to, to this morning, week number one, we talked about give and take. And we talked about how you can't give to the world what you don't take from God. And so we talked about that in week number one. And then week number two, uh, which was last week, we talked about fixing the flow and how your problem might not be a matter of provision, but it might be a matter of priority. And so that's where we were last week. And you can catch up with those messages on our website in our uh, message section of the website and go back and listen to those. But this is the question that we're asking throughout this entire series, and that is the question, are you fulfilled? Are you fulfilled? This morning, as you take an inward look at your life and you take inventory of where you're at in your life right now, can you honestly say that you're living a fulfilled life? Because you see, today we have a lot of people and, and myself included at times, where our lives are very full. They're full of stuff, right? They're, they're full of appointments, full of work schedule, full of kids schedule, full of this. I mean, it was just like yesterday was just nuts, right? Yesterday was nuts for me. I mean, I started early. I coached my son's baseball team, which I don't know if I'll do that again. But listen, you're in it. You got to commit to it. You got to go, okay? I mean, trying to round up a lot of six through eight-year-olds. Yes, that's a wide age gap. But I've got six through eight-year-olds, okay? I thought this kid was eight. He had a birthday uh, this past Thursday. I said, how old are you? And, and he goes, I just turned seven. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like, he's tall, but he's like, he was six. I'm like, good night. What are we feeding these kids? But anyhow, um, <clears throat> it's like herding cats, you know, when you got a lot of six- to eight-year-olds playing baseball and then you're trying to tell them what base to throw, and then they throw into the outfield. I mean, it's just like, it's awesome. You know, at times you just can't do anything but laugh. I mean, it's just, it's fun. It's fun. It's fun until you're like, because it's coach pitch. It's fun until you're pitching to your son, and you strike him out, and then he looks at you like you're the problem. <laughs> I'm like, are you serious, son? Like, and then he's like, he, he, just, he, he just looks at me, and he's like, what's that? And I'm like, well, son, you know, you're not looking at the ball. You're looking way over in left field. Like, what's the deal here? But anyway, so yesterday I started the day. I had baseball practice from 9.30 to 11. And so that was awesome. I had four of my nine kids show up. So, you know, you have a great practice when you got four kids. But, hey, you just got to roll with it. But I'm going to tell you, it was the best practice we had. Maybe it was because I wasn't having to worry about five other kids, like, paying attention. I just had four of them right there, you know. And so... Uh, we went to baseball practice, and of course, you know, the kids are screaming, what are we doing for lunch, you know, so then I had to go get lunch, and then, you know, uh, and then my, my daughter plays soccer this year. She's never played a sport in her life. She's 11 years old. She decides she wants to play soccer. I'm like, go for it, right? So we got a soccer game at 3.30 last, yesterday, 
And let me tell you, it was so hot, I just sweated through every piece of clothing I had, and all I did was sit there, all right? So the day was, I mean, but, but it was just like, it was totally nonstop from the time I woke up until the time I laid my head at the pillow because our lives are full. Our lives are full, but what I'm, in, what I'm fearful of is though our lives are full, our spirits are empty. And that's what I'm asking when I'm asking the question, are you fulfilled? I'm not asking, is your life full? I'm asking if you're fulfilled in doing what you're doing. You see, Jesus said this in John 10.10. He said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus came not just to give you eternal life. While that's great and that's awesome, sometimes I believe that, that the church has focused so much on salvation, which is great. We need to, right? Because eternity is eternity. It's forever. If you don't make this decision on this side of heaven for Jesus, well, then you're out of luck come this, after death, right? And so, but Jesus didn't just come to save us for eternity. He came to give us life in the now, and sometimes I think all we do is we get so wrapped up and so focused on eternity that we miss out on the life that we're supposed to live now. And to live a fulfilled life now means to be an agent of heaven and say, hey, I'm bringing heaven to the earth that I'm living in. That's what living a fulfilled life looks like. Now today I want to talk about something that the thief is using to steal from us today. You see, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I want to talk about something that he's trying to steal from us today. And if he's successful at it, guess what he does? He renders us powerless. If he's successful at it, then we become a, a, a person that is living a very unfulfilled life. You see, I'm talking about our worship this morning. Talking about our worship. He is out to steal your worship. Think about it. When Jesus was, was, was uh, just being baptized, it says that he was led into the wilderness and he was tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. And you want to know one of the tactics that Satan tried to use is he tried to steal his worship. He said, instead of worshiping God, worship me. He was stealing. He was trying to tempt Jesus to steal his worship. And if he was successful at it, he would have rendered Jesus powerless in the same way that we become powerless when he steals our worship. Because you see, worship has the ability to change atmospheres. You know, think about it this morning. Worship has the ability to turn your bad morning into something different. Worship has the ability to change a bad attitude. It has the ability to change the way you feel about life. You can come in and, and you could have had a bad day, but as soon as you walk into the presence of God and worship is there, it has the ability to change the atmosphere in your life. There's a story found in Matthew, Mark, and John about a woman's incredible act of worship that changed the atmosphere. We're going to read out of Mark and out of John. So I'm going to read Mark first, and then I'll read John. So here's the account in Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. It says this, Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. 
So this is already a good story because we've got a man that's been healed by Jesus. Now, while he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard. All right, let me stop there. So this, and you'll find out here in the story that it is a very costly perfume that she has in this alabaster jar. Why was it costly? Because if you do the research, this oil was something that was from India, and so it had to be imported. And so you can imagine that when we import things today with the technology we have, with the way the transportation is today, the cost goes up. Imagine how much more the cost would have gone up in days like that when they didn't have the resources that we have today. I mean, it would have taken days, weeks, months, maybe even years to get from one place to the next. And so it was a very expensive perfume. And so it says she broke open the jar and poured the perfume over his head. Some of those at the table were indignant. Why waste such expensive perfume, they asked. It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor. So they scolded her harshly. So that lets you know the value of the alabaster jar. It was worth a year's salary. Now, that's all relative, right? Because all of us in this room make a different amount of money every year. So the way that this story is written is a, is a way for you to, to understand what the reality of that cost is. So for, it doesn't matter how much money you make. If you make 30 grand a year or you make 100 grand a year, Just to think that you could have a year's worth of wages right now, right here, regardless of the amount, that's a lot of money. There's a lot of value that's there. So then it goes on to say, but Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, and you can help them whenever you want to, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered in disgust. I mean, you realize that today we're living out that prophetic statement that Jesus said right there, because we're talking about her today. She's been talked about for thousands of years because of this one act of worship. Now, let me read the same story in John to give us some more details. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. It says this, six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. So now this tells us another guy who has experienced Jesus. He's had an encounter with Jesus. We had Simon and Mark who was healed of leprosy. Now we've got Lazarus who was raised from the dead. And this is an incredible church service already. I mean, we're at the house, and, 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 and you got a guy who's standing up going, yeah, my name's Simon, and I had this thing called leprosy. Everybody in the room would have known what it is. Everybody would have understood that this disease was, was just the worst thing that you could possibly have. In fact, you would probably say to yourself, I'd rather just die instead of live with leprosy because when you have leprosy, nobody can be around you. Nobody can touch you. You don't feel physical touch because nobody is allowed to touch you because if they do, it's contagious. So you got to live in isolation. So you can imagine how excited Simon would have been because he was healed of leprosy. But boy, he feels like, I mean, how do you think he feels when Lazarus stands up? 
Well, ladies and gentlemen, he was healed of leprosy, but I was raised from the dead. Beat that, Simon. I mean, so the testimony was were flowing at the dinner table. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I had somebody come up to this place and say, I was raised from the dead by Jesus, I'd go a little bit nuts. So we got Lazarus that's there. It says, a dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, which was one of Lazarus' sisters, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard, and she anointed it anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. And the house was filled, somebody say filled, with the fragrance. So in Mark, it said that she poured it over his head. John says it was over his feet. The point being is that she just went ahead and just anointed the whole thing. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, now this lets us in on who led the charge on this next part. The disciple who would soon betray him said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold in the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor, he was a thief. What was he? A thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. And so Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, let me just set the scene for you. I mean, I know I read the story, but I, and I've already started that process. Now, we've got a dinner going, okay? And typically in this culture, it would have been all of the men sitting at the table reclined to where they would kind of lean into the table with their feet away from everybody because, I mean, who wants to smell your feet at the dinner table, right? And so they're at dinner. This would have been kind of like a church service. I mean, Jesus is there. We're breaking some bread. He's going to speak probably. And then you got Lazarus and you got Simon who did the testimony service, which we've already talked about, right? I mean, Simon healed of leprosy, Lazarus being raised from the dead. And then Mary comes out of nowhere. Like, what was she doing? Was she, like, cooking the dinner, and then all of a sudden she just felt like now is the time? I don't know. But what I do know is that Mary came out of nowhere to anoint Jesus. This would have totally um, violated every kind of cultural thing that there was in the book. That's the reason we read in Mark that it wasn't just Judas. It was all of them that were indignant towards her, going, what are you doing? You're not even supposed to eat in the same room we are in. You're not even supposed to let down your hair. And now you're going to break open this alabaster jar with this expensive perfume? Are you kidding me? What are you doing? You see, I believe that this paints a very good picture of where the church is today. Especially in our, uh, in our society, in the American society today, the Western civilization society today. I mean, you, you, you think about Europe. I mean, they're post-Christian, been post-Christian for a while. You've got articles being written left and right today where America is post-Christian now. I mean, let, let's, let's, let's bring it into in to our local context we're about to have another census, right, next year in 2020. In the 2010 census, statistics say that over half of the population of St. Tammany does not attend a church on Sunday morning. Like, guys, 
Like sometimes we think, oh man, there's a church on every corner. We got big churches, we got small churches. This church is filled, that church is filled. And we think, man, we're saturated, but we're not. Let me take it even a step further. And I've said this numerous times, and this was a couple of years ago, so we're already almost halfway there in, the, in, in what this is saying. The Baptists did a research study on the state of Louisiana, and they said in five years, two years ago, they said five years, in five years, St. Tammany will be the least reached parish in the state. So look, when I say this, I'm not just talking about America in general. I'm talking about St. Tammany Parish, the very place that we call home. But I believe this dinner that Jesus is at paints a very good picture of where the church is today. Let me explain myself. A lot of people, the majority, casually recline around Jesus. We just casually recline around Jesus. We like being around him. We like the idea of being around him, but we're just casual around him. And then there's one, the minority. There's one woman who puts herself at Jesus' feet and worships him. Are you hearing me this morning? We got too many people that are casual around Jesus. We cannot afford to be casual towards Jesus any longer. The days of us being able to be casual in our worship, casual in our dealings, casual in our service, casual in whatever you want to call it, towards Jesus has to come to an end. You see, when we become casual, miracles cease. When we become casual, we don't get to experience the supernatural. When we become casual, we don't get to experience encounters with Jesus. I mean, in Mark chapter 6, it says this, Jesus left the part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The people who were most familiar with him. The people who saw him grow up. The next Sabbath he began teaching in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. They were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? And then, verse 3, then they scoffed. Oh, he's just a carpenter. The son of Mary, the mother uh, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him because they became casual around him. Then Jesus told him, A prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And look at verse 5. And because of their unbelief, he could not do any miracles among them except to place his hand on a few sick people and heal them. It didn't say he would not. He said he could not. There's a difference between saying would not and could not. Would not is a choice. Could not means he didn't have a choice in the matter because the people had become too casual around him. And when they became too casual, what he was able to do ceased. Power ceased. Miracles ceased. The supernatural ceased. You know, sometimes we might ask ourselves, why aren't we seeing God move in our life? I would ask you, what is your worship like? Have you become too casual around Jesus that you're not seeing the supernatural in your own life. You're not seeing God move in your own life because you've become too casual in your worship. 
You just like the idea of reclining next to him, eating with him, being around him, but to encounter him, to put yourself at his feet, to worship him. Well, that's a different story. You see, church today has bought into the lie of a preference-based worship. If that one song is sung, man, boy, I got both hands up. I even will throw in a third leg. If it's this, if it's that, if it's not this, if it's not that, we have bought into this preference-based worship, and it is totally, I, I, I believe, it is a work of the enemy because he's out there to steal our worship because he knows if he can steal your worship, he's got everything he needs. He can render you powerless if he steals your worship. You see, Mary didn't wait for the right time because in that setting, there was no right time. She didn't wait until it felt right. You got to imagine she was probably scared out of her mind, but she felt like, I need to do this. There's just something, I just got to get to his feet. In fact, when you read about Mary in Scripture, there's three places that you read about her, and every single time she's at Jesus' feet. There was another time where she was eating dinner at Lazarus' house. Guess what? Martha was serving, and Mary just sat at his feet and just soaked it in because she was just wanting more of him, more of him. And Martha comes running out of the kitchen saying, why is she able to do this? And I'm over here busting my rear doing this. And he goes, no, 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 no. Look, she's doing what she needs to do. She's doing what's important. She's resting at my feet. She's listening to me. She's taking me in. She wants more of me. You see her in this instance. She's at the feet of Jesus worshiping because there's just no other response that she can think that, that is worth a response other than to worship him at his feet and to break what was costly in her life to worship him because she never got to a place where her worship became casual. So you might be asking, oh, oh, okay, I mean, but... but I." I, I, what, I mean, what does that even look like? How do I, how do I know that, that I'm really worshiping? How do, I, how do I know? I mean, I come in and I sing the songs or, or maybe I'm worshiping at my house or, or whatever. I just don't know what real worship looks like. Well, there's three things that I think in the story highlights what real worship looks like. The kind of worship that changes atmospheres. I don't know about you, but I want my worship to change the atmosphere that I'm in. Because there's times where I'm down. There's times where I become depressed. There's times where I just don't feel like doing anything. There's times where I, I get into a bad situation, a hard circumstance, and I just need a way out. Well, guess what? I don't feel like worshiping, but that's the time where I got to step up and I got to begin to worship. Because if I will worship, it will change my atmosphere. And what I felt 30 seconds ago will begin to dissolve. Because there's power in your worship. Your worship has the ability to change atmosphere. So what does that look like? Number one is this, is real worship has to cost something. Real worship has to cost something. We go back to Mark 14, 3. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard, and she broke open the jar, and she poured the perfume over his head. Mary poured the oil out, and not just a drop. 
See, this is where I think we get lost sometimes because I think what we do is, is we come with our jar. I don't know what your jar looks like. I don't know what your jar costs you. But what I do know is, is that this is what casual worship looks like. I'm going to take the top off and I'm just going to give him a little drop. Just a little drop. Until I get that little hair standing on the back of my neck, get a little goose pimple on my arm. Guess what? That's good enough for me. And then I'm just going to close it back up because it's not worth it to me to pour any more out because I want to keep it for myself because I don't know when I'm going to need it. I don't know when I'm going to have to use it. And I don't want to just pour it all out in this one moment because I don't know what is going to happen if I give everything away. Fear starts to settle inside of us because we don't like the, the idea of giving all of ourselves away because we feel like if we give everything away, what's left? And I'm here to tell you, if you will get to that place, man, God will give you a fulfilled life. He didn't say, I came to give you life and once you've poured it out, that's it. No, he said, I've come to give you life and life to the full. He will keep replacing it. He will keep pouring the oil. You talk about the lady in the Old Testament with the prophet Elijah. He said to go gather the jars. And as long as there's a jar that's empty, the oil will keep running. But as soon as the jar, there's no jar, the oil stops. I'm here to tell you, our worship cannot afford to be casual any longer. We can't afford just to come to him and just give a little and just give a little drop and say that's good enough it's not good enough because that's not worship that will change atmospheres that's worship that might change your skin a little bit I'm talking about a worship that changes you from the inside out and will change everything around you but it's got to cost you something real worship has to cost you something This oil was the most valuable thing that Mary owned. In fact, a lot of commentators say that this was an inheritance that was passed down. So not only was it valuable, but it was something that might have been in her family. Has anybody had anything passed down from a family member and you have it? That thing, I don't care if it's a plastic fork. If it's been passed down, there's a value attached to it that you just can't even begin to communicate to somebody who looks at it and says, it's just a plastic fork. No, that's not just a plastic fork. That's been passed down from my family for generation after generation after generation. There's a value there that you can't put a price tag on. And yet, she said, Jesus was worth it. She said, Jesus was worth it. You know what? Her worship in this moment said that Jesus was priceless. In John 12, it says that she let down her hair and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, in the culture we live in today, that doesn't really mean a whole lot to us. I mean, if you, do, if you haven't studied the Bible and you don't realize what the culture was when they wrote that, you don't realize what that means. And I'm not, try, I'm not trying to say that to say, like, you know, anything against your knowledge. I'm just I'm saying when you begin to realize what happened when she put her hair down, because for a woman in those days, they always wore their hair up. Because hair for a woman was her glory. And they would never, ever let their glory down in a public setting. Ever. 
The only person that would ever see her with her hair down was her and her husband. Outside of that, nobody saw a woman with her hair down because it was her glory. And her glory was meant for an intimate setting. But in this moment, she got before Jesus, and there was nobody else in that room at that time in, in, in her world. It was just her and Jesus. It was an intimate moment, and she began to let her glory down, and she placed her glory at his feet. Because for her, her glory means nothing without him. Your glory means nothing without him. You've got to place your glory at his feet. Romans 12.1 says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice. The kind that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. A sacrifice means it cost something. When Paul was writing, he was writing to, to, to the Romans. He was writing to this church. They would have understood what sacrifices meant. They would have understood that a sacrifice had to cost something. There is a cost to worship. You know, here's something that's interesting to note. Mary gave something that cost 300 denarii, which was a year's worth of salary. Judas, who looked on her and said, well, wait a minute, she could have sold that to the poor. He looked on her with contempt he took 30 pieces of silver to sell Jesus out. You see, Judas was casual around Jesus, and he sold him out. Mary, on the other hand, worshipped Jesus, and she had an encounter. You see, this is where I think, see today, what this is right here for you, Okay, me, me, like, like when, 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 when a guy comes up and gives a message like this, you're getting knowledge right now, right? We're taking a, a passage of Scripture. It's getting broken down. I've done research. I've looked into the story so that I could bring something to you, set something before you, and that's knowledge. But can I tell you, you can sit in this setting all day long, 24 hours, seven days a week, and you can get all the knowledge you want, and it won't change anything inside of you. The knowledge is supposed to spark something inside of you to get yourself moving into an encounter. And an encounter with Jesus is worth more than knowledge of Jesus. Because there's going to be a lot of people that will stand before him, and they'll say, well, I preached in your name. I casted out demons in your name. I did all of this in your name. And then you're going to be expecting him to say, well, come on in. And he's going to look back, and he's going to say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Because all you had was knowledge. You never had an encounter. Judas only had knowledge of Jesus. He walked with this guy for three and a half years, and all he had was knowledge. He never let it push him to an encounter with Jesus, and that was the reason that he was able to be picked out from the 12, and he was the one that was going to sell him out because he never pushed himself to a place of encounter. 
So you can be around Jesus all you want, and it will never change you. You can have all the knowledge in the world. You can read this entire Bible from the front cover to the back cover. Now, I would beg that something would happen, hopefully, by the time you get to the back cover. But there is a possibility that you could digest this whole thing, and it will never change you because all you're doing is receiving it as knowledge instead of it being the living Word of God and getting inside of you and having an encounter with Him. We have to stop settling for knowledge and we have to start going after the encounter with him because it's not going to be knowledge that gets us a fulfilled life. It's going to be the encounter with him that gets a fulfilled life. Nobody's leaving those doors saying, Matt Donnelly changed my life. Only people are going to walk through those doors and say, God changed my life. If you walk out of those doors and can't say that, then all you've gotten is knowledge. You haven't gotten the encounter. So what value do you put on Jesus? What value do you put on Jesus? Is he priceless? Is he worth you giving something that costs you something so that you can put yourself and position yourself in real worship? So real worship costs us something. Number two, real worship has a fragrance. Real worship has a fragrance. John 12, 3 says, Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard. She anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance. The house was filled with a fragrance. Remember, real worship not only changes you, but it has the power to change atmospheres. Psalms 22.3 says, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. What David was communicating is, is that, that saying, if you've been in church any amount of time, that he inhabits the praises of his people. That's where that comes from, that particular verse. When we begin to worship Jesus, Jesus has nothing but the, the option to inhabit that. Worship draws Jesus into your situation. Worship draws Jesus into your life. Worship draws Jesus into this place when we worship together because he inhabits the praises of his people. When we worship, it has the opportunity to change atmospheres. You look in Acts chapter 2. They weren't just sitting there having a hot dog in the upper room. They were worshiping Jesus. They were praying to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit fell. And it absolutely blew the roof off the place because tongues of fire came down. They started speaking in other languages, and then the people that were around the house were drawn because they heard their language, and they said, i got to find out what that's all about. And then Peter steps forward. 3,000 people get saved. I don't know about you, but that's pretty amazing. And it all all started with worship in an upper room because worship changes atmospheres acts 4 31 after this prayer the meeting place shook and they were filled with the holy spirit and then they preached the word of god with boldness the place where they were worshiping and praying it shook because worship has the ability to change atmospheres. Acts 16, 25 and 26, Paul and Silas are in prison. Guess what they're doing? They're worshiping Jesus. Guess what the effects were? Then earthquake happens. Jail cells bust open. Prisoners are freed. Why? Because worship changes atmospheres. Where you feel locked up, worship brings freedom.
And here's the thing, the smell of the perfume that she poured on him would have lingered on Jesus throughout his final week on this earth. I don't know about you, but back in the day, I lived with my grandparents. Grandfather was a Stetson man. Anybody had Stetson man? I didn't necessarily want to be a Stetson man. So because I didn't want to be a Stetson man, I was a brute seventh grader. The green bottle. Come on, somebody. I'm so thankful Jesus delivered me of the green bottle. And that I'm no longer a brute man. I don't mean to offend you if you use the green bottle. Brute men or Stetson men. I still love you. But I'm still praying for you. But let me just tell you, you bust that stuff open, and that stuff is fragrant. Not necessarily in a good way, but it's fragrant. And you pour that stuff on, and until you take a bath, that stuff ain't coming off. Maybe that's why seventh graders used it, because they don't like taking baths. I don't know what the deal is. You know, it's like you go into PE, you sweat it up, and then you don't want to take a shower because you're like in that, like, you know, and you're just sloshing the brute all around. Oh, yeah. Brute for, like, weeks. Sometimes you could wash it off and it's still there. But what she poured on him, you see, because this was going into his final week, his final week of life on earth. Think about this. The same disciples that looked on her with scorn, that were indignant towards her, had to smell that for the rest of of his time on this earth. When they ate the last supper with him, they smelt it. When he washed their feet, he smelt it. When the guards whipped him, they could smell it. When they put the crown of thorns in the robe on him, they could smell it. When he was carrying his cross, they could smell it. When he was hung on the cross and he stayed up there, people could smell it. What's that smell? What's that smell? Oh, that's Mary. That's Mary's worship. That's Mary's worship. That's Mary's worship. That's Mary's worship. You see, real worship has a fragrance. And that fragrance lingers. And people will notice that fragrance. And people will begin to ask about that fragrance. And then people will be drawn by that fragrance into their own encounter with Jesus. Because your worship has the ability to change atmospheres. As the keys come up, the first one is real worship has to cost you something. The second one is real worship has a fragrance. And the third one is this. Real worship will be criticized. Real worship will be criticized. You might be looking at me like, well, that's kind of a strange one. Well, let's look at Mark chapter 14, 4 through 9. Some of those at the table were indignant. Why waste such expensive perfume, they asked. It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor, so they scolded her harshly. But Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why criticize her? 
for doing such a good thing to me. You will always have the poor among you and you can help them whenever you want to, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could do. Not that this was a point, but here's one just for free. She did what she could. Jesus said she did all she could do. Real worship means you've done all you can do. And he has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth, whenever the good news is preached throughout the world, the woman's deeds will be remembered and discussed. You know what her worship did? Her worship exposed the spirit of religion that was in that room. Because the spirit of religion is that which criticizes real worship. You know, sometimes we think, well, man, that person's a little crazy when they worship. I mean, they get out of their seat. They might jump up and down. No offense to Laura, but some of y'all might have thought, man, who's this crazy lady just talking out in the middle of worship? See, in that room were the disciples. In that room was a man that was raised from the dead. In that room was a man that Jesus touched and healed. And yet they all looked at her within being indignant. What is this crazy girl doing? They criticized her worship because it didn't look like their worship. Can I tell you, real worship looks different for every person. Your worship might not look like the person next to you, but you don't have any right to look at them and say they're crazy because they don't worship like you. For some people, you don't know what they've been through. You don't know what their life story is. You don't know what they've been delivered of. You don't know what they've been set free from. You don't know what their life has been like. You don't know what trials they've had to overcome, tribulations they've had to overcome, addictions that they've had to get through and set free from. And so when they worship like crazy, who cares? They've been set free. Their worship is real. And they have an understanding that real worship changes atmospheres. You see, don't ever let the religious spirit tell you that your worship is wasted. They said, this is wasteful of what she's doing with this oil. No, it wasn't wasteful. It was right on time. Served a purpose. Her worship was not a waste. She did what she could do. And wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. You see, her worship not only changed the atmosphere in that room that she was in that night, but it has continually changed the atmosphere wherever the good news is preached. Do you realize that her worship is still changing atmospheres 2,000 years later? Today, in 2019, Mary's worship is still changing atmospheres because she chose real worship. Worship that cost her something. Worship that was priceless.
this morning. What price are you putting on your worship? Is it costing you something? Does your worship have a fragrance? And then are you allowing other people's criticism? And listen, it might not even be another person. It might even be your own self that criticizes you of your worship. Saying, oh, don't go there because what will somebody think? Sometimes you just need to tell yourself to be quiet. You still have to understand that you're 100% flesh and 100% spirit. So guess what? You still have to deal with your flesh, man. I don't care how many times you've worshiped and sang and prayed and, you know, you've given your heart to Jesus and all these things. Listen, you still struggle with your flesh. And your flesh will always try to compete with your spirit and try to win that battle. Yes, the enemy is out to steal your worship, but so is your flesh. Your flesh is out to steal your worship as well. So don't let yourself criticize you. Don't let anybody else criticize your worship. Because your worship has the ability to change atmospheres. Will you stand with me all over this place?